Welcome to the Money Insights Podcast, where high-income earners come to learn wealth-building strategies that will take them from high income to high net worth. With your hosts, financial and wealth-building experts, Christian Allen and Rod Zabriskie. Welcome into another episode of the Money Insights Podcast, where we talk all things money and business. My name's Christian Allen, and with me on the other line, Rodney the Pod Zabriskie. Rod, what's going on, man? Hey, I'm glad to be here, and I'm excited about today's interview, uh, but also because we have another member of our team joining us. Okay, so we have both Dr. Keith Whitaker, Managing Director at Wise Council Research, and our very own Tim Whalen joining us. Now, Tim had a relationship with Keith and was kind enough to introduce us to him, and that's how we ended up getting Keith on the podcast. So part of the reason I'm really excited about this conversation, Rod, is because it's just a different, unique subject. Now, Mm -hmm. we always talk about money, wealth building, and all that kind of stuff, but today we're going to talk about it in a little bit of a different context. Instead of talking about the math and the money, we're going to talk about the family element, the human element, the philosophy. And so lucky for us, we have an expert in that space who's written several books. And, and so we're really excited to have Keith with us. Why don't you just tell us a little bit about Keith before we uh, bring him into the interview? Yeah, absolutely. So he actually comes, his background, like in his education and whatnot, comes from the philosophy side and and. Which is really uh, interesting. Absolutely. Not many money people come from the philosophy side, right? Yes. And so he does bring a unique point of view to this conversation and really to the conversations that he has every day with with his clients as he's helping families to manage, not just manage their wealth per se, but kind of wealth transfer and just how we view it, how we're going to use it, uh, how we can transfer this kind of family culture to to future generations, et cetera. There's, there's a lot kind of wrapped up in this, but as, as you mentioned, Christian, Keith is uh, managing director of Wise Council Research. And I thought maybe one of the most cool things about him is that in 2015, Family Wealth Report uh, named him the Outstanding Contributor to Wealth Management Thought Leadership. And he's appeared in the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Financial Times. So been around a while, been doing some really cool things, and we get to hear about a lot of those today. Mm, love it. Okay, without further ado, let's bring in Keith Whitaker and our very own Tim Whelan. Welcome back to the show. We are very excited to have with us Dr. Keith Whitaker, uh, Managing Director of Wise Council Research and author of many books, but we're going to talk a little bit about Complete Family Wealth today. So Keith, we're super excited to have you here. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Okay, before it works, we're really excited to jump into your story. You've got a really unique backstory. Before we do, I just want to make sure everyone knows the voices that are on the podcast. So um, I'm Christian. Everyone probably already knows that. I've got my regular co-host with me, Rod the Pod Zabriskie. Rod, hey, how hey. are you? Good. And we've got a guest host with us from Team Money Insights, Tim Whalen. Tim, how are you, my friend? I'm doing well. Thank okay, you. Well, we well we appreciate you introducing uh, Keith to us. So that's that's why Tim's on the show with us because he made the introduction and um, has a lot of good questions. So we're excited about it. Okay, Keith. Let's jump into your backstory. You were teaching philosophy at Boston College, from what I read, and mm-hmm. now you lead Wise Council Research. So just tell us a little bit about your backstory 
how you kind of got into the philosophy world and then how you made this really, at least it looks from the outside, like a significant change, maybe not, but this shift over to the, the financial planning world, but in a little bit of a unique way. Sure. Well, happy to, um, I guess when you look at your life, looking backwards, things often seem to make sense. But if you looked forward and imagined that, you couldn't imagine how you'd end up that way. So I think my <laughs> yes. life, like many others, is, is of that sort. Yeah. So in terms of um, you know, my education, as you said, is uh, in political philosophy in particular. Uh, that's what I did my dissertation in. And so the core questions of political philosophy are things like, what is the good life? What is human excellence? Uh, how can we create communities that foster uh, human excellence or a good life or flourishing? And so I think you probably can recognize that some of those questions, and maybe all of them, are very relevant to the field of family wealth as well. When we think about parents mm -hmm. trying to raise their children amid wealth, young people trying to find their way, our political communities thinking about things like inequality or the like. Um, so, but the, the path to, to connect those two points for me was that uh, after teaching for many years and writing in, in the field of political philosophy, I uh, started working in the education philanthropy space. So I mm. was working with uh, some foundations around designing programs uh, around um, moral education and, and uh, the like. And that led me to connect with foundations that were family run and ended up working with families around their philanthropy. So identifying goals and purpose, communicating effectively with each other, creating boards for foundations. And from that work in the philanthropy space, I then started working with families more broadly. So with family businesses and transitions in family businesses or mm -hmm. families that are financially based. So managing significant amounts of money together. And so that work really just grew organically, but with mm -hmm. that core sense of coming back to the human questions or what we call the qualitative wealth. So I don't work with families around the money per se, investing or banking or insurance or anything like that. I leave that to people who know those fields much better than I do. Uh, but really I work with families around what we call this qualitative wealth. So the non-financial wealth that every individual and every family has, its strengths, its abilities, how to measure those, how to identify them, how to grow that wealth over time. And so that's really been a, as I said, looking back, it makes sense. There's a continuity of a thread of those core questions about what's a good life. And then mm -hmm. thinking about that as a family, looking ahead, I probably would have never connected studying Socrates to then writing about family <laughs> wealth. But there you have it. Okay. That's, that's awesome. And, and really interesting. So um, now you've got, you started Wise Council Research, right? With a partner, I believe. Um, mm -hmm. that's right. mm -hmm. what is like, maybe just to define for the people, what is wise council research? What do you guys do? What's kind of the mission philosophy around your organization? Sure. Well, so just in a thumbnail sketch, wise council research actually has two parts. So one, we run a public charity that focuses on doing research in the field of family wealth and philanthropy. And I can talk a little bit more about some of the outcomes uh, from that. And then Wise Council Research Associates, our consultancy, is the area where my colleagues and I do this work so specifically with families, family offices, and some select trusted advisors to uh, families with significant wealth 
around that work of measuring, managing, and growing their qualitative wealth. And we have a process to do that that's kind of similar to the financial planning or wealth management process. So where we work, say, with a family, we help them begin the process through getting a real clear diagnosis uh, through an assessment that we designed called the family balance sheet that really then helps the family see where are we strong? In what areas of qualitative wealth have we really built up our reserves? What areas are there opportunities for further growth and learning? So we always start an engagement that way, just as someone might start a financial planning or an investment engagement by getting clear about what are the goals, where are the areas to, to work on, so that then in the following six months, 12 months, we're really designing a plan of action and learning that follows from who that family really is, rather than just what our ideas as consultants and experts happen to be. So we found that just you know, similar to the wealth management process in an iterative way, over time, over a series of years, people can really look back and say, you know, we started with some, say, real deficiencies around communication and communicating effectively around difficulties. We've done X, Y, Z over the last two years to deal with that. And now when we retake the family balance sheet, we see that our scores have increased in this key area of qualitative capital around communication. So it gives people a way to wrap their arms around things that seem and are very intangible, can be sometimes hard to define. And as a result, family members, even though they know it's important, can be very hesitant to take action and they tend to procrastinate around these areas. So we really help people take thoughtful action in the, in the field of qualitative wealth. Perfect. Okay. And you've obviously been kind of hitting on this, this difference between qualitative and quantitative, but I want to be, I want to ask you to just be really clear and just really define the difference between those for everybody so that as we continue through this conversation that 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 everyone's really clear on what we're talking about when you when you say qualitative versus quantitative sure thanks rob that because that's a key point that's a sort of foundational matter here so um what we did is over the last 20 years of working with families and then also doing research with families we really stepped back and asked ourselves, what are the factors that have allowed families to succeed over time? Like we all know the statistics around family businesses, around families uh, failing to go from one generation to the next. It's very rare for businesses to succeed as a family owned and led business for a long period of time. So what we did was he said, all right, of the 100 plus families that we've worked with as consultants, and then of the 100 plus families that we've been researching in what we call our 100 year family study, which is a study of families that have successfully transitioned a major enterprise through at least the third generation of leadership. Mm -hmm. So a pretty rarefied group from families yeah. all around the world. We've said, what allowed those families to succeed over time? And we did a thematic analysis for those factors. And we really pulled that down to five key factors that we define as the five forms of qualitative wealth, right? So these are the assets, the strengths that allow families to succeed. And those five factors, very briefly, first and foremost, human capital. So the family members' mental and physical health, their ability to learn and share that learning with each other. Secondly, legacy capital. So that's where we come to the individual and shared sense of purpose or values of the family members. They're kind of family brand and identity. Uh, the third is family relationship capital. That's where communication lies. So the ability of family members to communicate effectively around what really matters to them. 
Fourth, structural capital. This is a little more particular to families with significant wealth or a business. So that's the family members' understanding of the governance structures, policies, procedures that allow them to make wise decisions together. And then finally, fifth, social capital. That's the sense of commitment or connection to communities beyond the family. So a sense of working for, helping out something greater than themselves. So again, this isn't that we impose this definition of wealth on families. We right. really looked at the ones we worked with and the, this research population and learned from them what consistently across the board has allowed these people to succeed. And that's how we identified these five factors and these five forms of qualitative wealth. So if I could maybe uh, summarize what it sounds like is you're starting with, with the individuals, the kind of the human capital, what they bring to the table. And then in the second, as an extension to that, the second one with, with legacy of, of, you know, what, what's the purpose and, and kind of thinking behind it. And then it starts to bring it together with relationships and structure. Mm-hmm. And then, and then kind of finally that, that all together, what, what are we all kind of trying to drive toward? Is that, is that a fair summary? Yeah, that's a, that's a nice summary. I'd say, and the social capital, that could be philanthropically, charitably, mm-hmm. what are we working towards? It could be through business. You know, what kind of impact are we having on customers and communities through our business ventures? Um, so there's a lot of different ways that connection with communities beyond yourself can go. But again, we saw that families that are only inward focused, you know, just on, uh, you know, not that it's a bad thing, but how much tax can I save, for instance? Yeah. Those families don't tend to grow and develop together and prove resilient over the decades. Yeah, that doesn't doesn't tend to drive toward legacy or or that social like like you just talked about. That makes sense. Right. Right. So Keith, one of the questions that that I had was, you know, what what fears? You know, what's one of the top fears that's keeping the families that you're working with up at night? Sure. Well, I, I say in general, the way we work with families is around positively. What are they trying to achieve? Um, rather than negatively, what are they afraid of? But fear is a, pos- is a powerful motivator. So I think it's, sure. it's worth asking that question. And I don't know if all of you are parents or your listeners uh, have children, but clearly the main fear that uh, families come to us with, the parents and grandparents come to us with, is that the financial wealth is going to somehow keep their children or grandchildren from truly becoming all that they can be. You know, it's going to stunt their potential in various ways, either through, you know, poor choices in terms of relationships, you know, leading to relationships that are destructive, poor choices personally, physically, emotionally, uh, addiction and the like, or just more generally kind of a failure to become independent you know, to work, to have a sense of value as someone who's contributing to others good. And so that's really the main fear is that financial wealth will rob their children of their full potential. And it's a, it's an extremely deep and powerful fear and, and one that, you know, again, the more wealth you have, the more pressing it becomes because there is that great there there is that potential that someone could do nothing with their lives as a result of that financial wealth. So we take but, that head on the parents. That that is something that that I feel like I've it's come up as I talk to people they mm-hmm. they mention that they they really don't want to talk about money with their kids or the family's financial wealth because of that fear. How mm-hmm. 
I mean, you're talking about communication within the family. So how does that how does that play out? Right. So you've touched him on a kind of key dynamic that when we're afraid of something, you know, a very common response is to avoid it. Right. So avoidance of the topic or procrastination is a different form of avoidance. And that happens all the time. And it's completely understandable. So when faced with that challenge, the first thing that we would do is to acknowledge the difficulty. Like this is hard stuff. Right. It's hard to do. It's hard to do well. And that's the reason that most people don't take it on or, or keep it at arm's length. So acknowledging those parents concerns that lead them to that silence. The second thing we do is to say, all right, but how realistic is it to remain silent about these things? It's one thing, you know, if your children are three or four or something like that, when your children are 30 or 40, it's a whole different <laughs> matter, right? And in between three and 30, there's a lot of time. So what we do is we'll ask people, you know, who do you want to be talking to your children about wealth, right? Do you want it to be, um, you know, the internet? Do you want it to be Zillow when they look up the value of their of your homes? Do they want do you want it to be just Google when they're looking up your work, your job, your business, you know, financial reporting from that? Because that happens all the time, especially with, you know, preteens, teenagers and the like. Do you want it to be their friends at school who make comments about, you know, oh, well, your parents are really rich? You know, so do you want it to be teachers? We've had families where the family is well-known and teachers and schools will make comments about the family mm. to, the, to children. So by posing it, who do you want to talk to? We normalize that somebody's going to be talking to your children about money. So really the key then is to use the opportunities yourself in a thoughtful way to help prepare your children to receive well, if that's your plan. And most parents clearly look at the plan as I want to give my children something. I want them to benefit from my hard work and stewardship and the like, but I don't want to talk to them about it. And that's a dangerous combination, right? Because it can set up expectations, misunderstandings in children. It can affect their choices about work relationships, and it can be a huge opportunity cost to go for decades without talking about these things or letting other misleading sources talk to them. So having done all that, we then really think with parents about who your children are, where are they in their own development as human beings, who are they as individuals too, and then what's appropriate as messages and skills and activities to build those skills at each step along their lives. So that there are then the goal being they are really prepared to live independent lives and to receive well if you choose to give to them. Hey, sorry for the interruption. Just wanted to let you know that you can take the F3 assessment right now over at moneyinsights.net. And after the short five minute assessment, you'll get specific recommendations that will help you move from high income to high net worth. Enjoy the rest of the show. That's great. I that leads a little bit into the the idea of the structures and how how families decide to pass that wealth along. Mm -hmm. A lot of families use trust, and those are, are a great tool. But I, I like how you in in the book talk about how the trust in of itself, you know, it it could go either way in terms of a positive or negative thing in the in the recipient's life. Uh, you, I think I've heard you talk about how you know sometimes a kid will be like, you know, this document seems like it's an awful lot about keeping me away from the money. So, you know, how do you, how do you take a trust and turn it into more of a, I think you've used a phrase gift of love to, to the 
rising generation. Right. So it's very common. In fact, I'd say it's more likely that recipients will misunderstand the use of trust than they will see it as a positive thing, a blessing. You know, the typical stance is, I don't have any clue what this document means or says. It's a bunch of legalistic gobbledygook. Um, my main thing, my main sense is that it's, you know, not my money. Like I can't get my hands on it. I have to jump through these hoops. Um, and so should I even really think about it as my money? I mean, I work with people in their 30s, 40s all the time who have very significant trust set up for them, you know, often by parents who didn't expect that much money to be in the trust, but through some sort of really great turn in business, a pop in valuation, suddenly there's a lot more money in their children's trust than they ever planned for. And those children who are adults are themselves not prepared to use that well. So they often mentally will just say, that's not my money. I'm not even gonna think about it. And they can go for that way for decades and then later feel really regretful about that choice or feel really confused about, well, you know, what was I supposed to do here? So in terms of making trust, not just a burden or the like, but a blessing, a, a gift of love, as, as Tim, you quoted from our book, there's a few things that people can do. I mean, first and foremost, it starts with the givers. So to, to reflect yourself and say, why am I setting this trust up? You know, what are the purposes here? And it's perfectly legit to say, well, one of the purposes is that my tax attorney, you know, told me to do this in order to transfer wealth in an effective manner. Another very acceptable purpose is to say, you know, I, I know that there is, you know, some bad actors in the world and I want to try to protect this money as best I can from lawsuits, divorces, et cetera. That's perfectly fine too. Are there any other purposes beyond the kind of protective stance? Usually people do have such things. They think, oh, I want to make sure that my kids, if they decide to pursue further education, they have funds. If they decide to switch jobs and switch careers, they can step back and spend some time doing that thoughtfully. They want to buy a house uh, that they'll have a down payment or the like. So getting those purposes on the table, even if they don't go into the trust document literally, being clear in your own heart as a giver. And then secondly, doing what you can to express that purpose. Maybe it's in a, a letter of wishes that accompanies the trust or an instruction to the trustees, or maybe even a letter to the beneficiaries because the beneficiaries may be very young now, but they'll grow up. And this is a chance for in your own words to express why this trust exists. Uh, why does any of this matter? Because it goes back to what you were saying, Tim, that when the beneficiary looks at the trust, all they see is the legalistic stuff, which often seems very much around what you can't do. You can't have this money this way. You can't have it that way. You have to you know, kind of jump these hoops. It's having a statement of purpose then clarifies, oh, the giver, my parents or grand grandparents, whoever, they actually were thinking about me. It wasn't just about the laws and the, and the document. They were thinking about me, about how this trust could benefit me. Like somebody cared about me here. That's very powerful. That's the beginning of making this a gift of love. And then it also gives a way for the beneficiaries and the trustee or the givers too, if they're still around, to then talk about specific distributions. You know, does this fit not just the rules of the tax laws of how a trust has to work, does it fit the intent of the giver and the desire to have a positive impact in the recipient's life?
So those are just a few of the steps we could get into more about like how beneficiaries and trustees can relate. But from the fundamental standpoint of the giver, reflecting on your purposes, getting those down in writing, sharing them with the beneficiary and the trustees eventually is incredibly powerful. And it's really not a hard step to take. So it's something that the more people do it, the more they're going to have successful trusts rather than confusion or worse, you know, things like litigation. I've got, I've got a quick question here, Keith, I'm jumping in. So Mm-hmm. Can you tell us, well, okay, so can you tell us about, you mentioned a successful outcome. What does a successful outcome with a family look like? Maybe you have an example of what that looks like. And I'm also curious, uh, what does working with you and Wise Council Research look like? So if we have people who are intrigued by this conversation and it's resonating, um, what does it look like? What's kind of your process for working with people? Sure. Um, well, let me think about that first uh, question Uh, Christian. So in terms of successful outcomes, well, clearly the families that work with us want to build or maintain their capital in each of those five areas I mentioned, Mm -hmm. the human legacy, family relationships, structural and social. And so the work at any specific time or year might focus on one or another of those instead of all five. So a successful outcome for a family, say that's wanting to work on legacy capital, just take an example that often comes up. You know, they realize we have never really talked about values. I mean, we live them maybe more or less, but we haven't made it conscious. Um, We certainly don't have a plan as how we're going to live our values as a family, whether in our charity or our business or our personal connections and such. So a successful outcome could be going through the work of each individual, clarifying his or her values, what really matters most uh, to him or her, the family then coming together to share the results of that, Mm. pulling together a shared statement of values, thinking about how those shared values then translate into mission for things like a foundation or a business or the like, or trusts as we were talking about. So that that process right there, uh, fully pursued, can lead in not a terribly long period of time to a lot of clarity for those individual family members and for the entities that they own or control. Um, And it can give everybody a sense that we're not just on autopilot or we're not just reactive to the marketplace or what's going on in our communities or politically. We really have stepped back and proactively thought about what matters to us and how we wanna live that in the world. So that's just one example, taking that one capital, legacy capital of what a successful outcome looks like there. We could talk about the other capitals the same. Um, But then in terms of the second part of your question, Christian, like how does a family work with us? Well, just in a, you know, kind of snapshot, we have a process that's a year long process. And Mm, so families can repeat uh, that process over time the way they would like with financial planning or estate planning. It's basically a year-long process where at the beginning of the process, let's say with a new family, new client family, we'd first speak with the family leaders to get clear on what it is that they see as the challenges facing the family right now, what they want to work on. We designed with them an invitation to the rest of the adult family members in the family to take the family balance sheet. So that online assessment that we designed, and that measures the family members' responses in each of those areas of the five capitals. So first we we tee up the invitation, everybody then takes the family balance sheet. We then 
pull together the results, analyze those. We put together a, what we call a family qualitative capital report, share that back with the family leaders in a draft form for their input. And then generally, I'm not gonna say always because there's, there's always variations, but generally what we would do is we would then convene a family meeting. So with a clear agenda, clear ground rules for the family as a whole, for people who took the time to respond, to get a sense of what the findings were, what the results were in each capital, as well as our recommendations about here's specific work, whether actions or learning for you to consider pursuing over the next six to 12 months uh, to, to work on these areas of opportunity. We'll then have a facilitated discussion. The family will decide what they wanna prioritize. We'll memorialize that. And then based on what it is that they want to work on, we may provide coaching, consultation, further family meetings as they're doing that work. We may help them find other people who are focused in specific areas, like in structural capital, you know, a very common topic is, well, we really don't have clarity about what our uh, board policies are for the foundation. We don't have procedures for making decisions together there. So maybe it's important to get somebody who has some expertise in foundation governance to come in and work with that board to firm up mm. uh, their policies and procedures. Maybe there's a real uh, communication challenge in the family between specific individuals. Well, there, that might be a consultation or a counselor to work with those individuals around the, that dynamic that's causing that blockage. So whatever the specifics are, we'll either work with the family or we'll help them source uh, resources to work with them. And then six months, nine months after that first family meeting, we'll reconvene everybody to say, all right, how is this going? Uh, where are we in the process? What has gone well? What's proved challenging? What new things have come up that we should add into the mix? So that people really do feel that they're not just getting a report and then you know it just disappears into the ether and a year later you say, oh, what did we do about that? It's really that there's a, 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 a kind of evaluation, monitoring the process, and then clear measurement in the following year about how are we doing, where have we seen advances, where have new things arisen. So we find mm -hmm. it, it really works very effectively. And again, take something that, if you just said to a family, hey, you need to work on your communication, <laughs> it would boggle most of our minds as to what to do about that. But this way, it's really the family saying, we need to work on communication based on these responses. It's not me, the consultant coming in and saying, hey, this is your problem. The family has really surfaced the issues. We've helped kind of bring that to the surface. And then we help provide real thoughtful guidance about what to do with it. I'm curious about uh, one thing you mentioned. So when, when you start those kind of family meetings after you've done, done the research, right? The internal research with the family and you bring them together, are there a lot of surprises among the family leadership and or, you know, the children and whatnot uh, as they see the results and, and you're kind of now bringing this to the to the group? Well, I would, I guess I'd say, Rod, that there are sometimes surprises for some individuals, but as a rule, most of the time in our families, we all kind of know what the issues are. It's just, we don't want to put them on the table or we don't want to talk about them or we don't want to do anything about them. And so what this process usually does is it takes the things that people know they really need to talk about and it allows them to talk about it in a safe and manageable way. Yeah. So that's generally my rule for family meetings is there should be no surprises 
right? Mm -hmm. That through this process of the assessment, the meetings with leadership, having a clear agenda. Like I would mm -hmm. say, one of the things that consistently happens with family meetings is that people will, will decide, oh, let's, let's meet as a family. Let's talk about our charity or let's just talk about how things are going or we've got these trust things in the background we need to talk about. Somebody will call together the meeting, you know, dad or mom or whoever, but because it feels uncomfortable, they don't really know what to do about planning that meeting. So there's no agenda. People are left wondering what's going to happen today. Like, is somebody dying? Is that what we're going to find mm -hmm. out? You know, and literally, I mean, family mm -hmm. members have said that to me. Um, so if, if your listeners take anything from this conversation, I'd say, if you're going to plan a family meeting, make sure that you create an agenda beforehand. You share that agenda with everyone who's going to be present at least mm -hmm. a week or two beforehand so they can have some input into it and they show up prepared, knowing what's on the agenda, what part they have to play there so that there aren't any surprises. Brilliant. Mm -hmm. It sounds to me like it's very holistic and, and deliberate. The whole process is both of those things. Um, mm -hmm. Are there parameters in terms of what types of families that you will actually work with? I mean, obviously everybody um, deals with these kind of communication challenges and every, and on really all of those qualitative things. Um, but just, just uh, for our understanding, what are the parameters and the types of families that you generally will work with? Sure. So uh, we don't have like specific parameters of like who we won't work with, but yeah. in terms of, um, <laughs> you know, kind of what, what we found really works well is, uh, you know, first of all, we work with families, right? So it's yep. not an individual consultation. It's not a couple's consulate consultation. So really working with families. Uh, secondly, that our families are ones who are really focused on the long-term and the impact of their wealth usually not just on their children's generation, but their grandchildren's generation, at least. Mm -hmm. um, so having that long view, um, that implies within it, of course, that you're talking about a level of wealth that people estimate they're not gonna consume in their lifetimes, their children aren't gonna consume in their lifetimes. You know, So that sets the financial uh, bar yeah. fairly high as people think about well, what really matters here and, and do I have a challenge uh, in this respect? Um, the third thing is that there has to be a level of a health to be able to work effectively together. So sometimes I'll get calls, you know, from very well-meaning family members who are in a situation where the family is in active litigation, let's say about, you know, a shared family vacation property or a family business and where people are cut off from each other. They're having their lawyers do the talking and such. And this is not the process for that. You know, there are folks who specialize in uh, mediation services, conflict resolution services for families. And so in those circumstances, I, I gladly connect people with those resources. But this is really more focused on the, you know, if we think of it from zero to one versus negative one to zero, this is the zero to one side of things of helping people enhance and grow some strengths that are already there. So those are some of the uh, criteria. I mean, just very basically, this kind of process obviously takes some time and attention throughout the year. There is the application of the instrument as well. So as a starting base, we, we price this based on the number of family members involved. So it's not based okay. on how much money you have or how many, how many investable assets or anything like that. It's in the number of family members involved. Um, but our 
basic price is $50,000 a year. So, you know, for that, that means that that's a significant financial commitment for folks. Mm -hmm. So they have to feel that they have the resources to commit to something that financial time wise, and then that sense of cohesion as well. Yeah, that's super helpful to understand. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to make sure we don't forget about uh, the your book, Complete Family Wealth, and just hit on it for for a second before we close up. Sure. Talk to us just a little bit about what someone would get at when they read that book. I, I know Tim has read a lot of it. I skimmed it. But just talk mm-hmm. a little bit about what um, you were trying to accomplish in the book and what people can expect when they read it. Sure. Well, I mean, you can get a much deeper sense of some of the topics we've already touched on as to, you know, mm-hmm. these five forms of qualitative wealth, um, you know, and various examples, specifics there. Um, certainly, our hope was that it would allow people to reorient themselves in reading it. Mm-hmm. So as important as the focus is on financial wealth to really say, you've got a lot on the table already in this non-financial wealth, be as mindful and intentional around preserving and growing that as you do the financial wealth, or else you're going to find that you don't have a family down the line. I mean, that things will split apart. It doesn't necessarily mean you're going to lose all the money, but you'll lose that cohesion and sense of, of, of a shared experience as a family. And so we start with the qualitative wealth. Um, we share you know, a lot of very helpful frameworks for thinking about your family and the different spheres of activity. So management of assets versus ownership of assets versus attention to the family itself. These are things that are usually pretty eye-opening for people. Um, we go through thinking about the different roles within a family with wealth. So we've just touched upon very lightly here the difference between thinking of yourself as a giver, how to give well, you know, and communicate thoughtfully around your gifts, thinking about children as recipients. Well, what's involved in receiving well? What's the preparation, those steps that I alluded to when Tim asked that question about what keeps people awake at night? So there's a lot in there about the specifics of how to prepare children to receive well. So different roles beyond that, of course, trustee, beneficiary roles. We try to help, because trusts are so important to families with significant wealth, we try to help break down those relationships so that people see them more clearly uh, than we usually do, those of us who aren't lawyers, um, and really think about how to make this a living structure rather than something that, again, feels like you're jumping through hoops for a legalistic document. And then finally, I mean, there's a lot of other things in there, but I think maybe some of the most important things are really specifics around the process of either communicating about gifts, so talking with children about things you've already set up uh, and doing that in a thoughtful way that feels like it's, you know, step by step. So communicating about um, gifts and then really having effective family meetings too. We've just touched here upon like just one little tidbit of say like the importance of agendas, but there are all sorts of other aspects of effective family meetings uh, from ground rules to location, timing, process of the meeting, facilitation of the meeting. So there's a lot in there for family members who want to to try that out, who think it would be important, maybe even essential to them um, that they can get from the book as well. Well, you know, I'll just put in one more plug for the book because my family, my parents are not in a position to hire Keith and his team to to do the comprehensive qualitative capital management. But 
after reading the book, I called our family together, my parents, my siblings, and we got together and had a family meeting and it was incredibly productive and we're going to do it again. So it's, it's a way to kind of bring principles that we're talking about down to the situation. If you aren't quite in that position to, to do the full process to, to implement your family. Mm-hmm. Great. Yeah, that's well, glad to hear that it went well. <laughs> Well, I love the mission and philosophy around what you do. It's obviously really unique. There's not a lot of people talking about this qualitative component. It's generally the quantitative, right? So uh, again, just love the mission. Keith, this has been a really great conversation. Before we get off, tell us where we can go to get the book and just get connected with you. Sure. Well, so uh, the book Complete Family Wealth or any of our other books. So we haven't talked about them, but books like Family Trusts, if you're mm-hmm. if you're focused on that area, Voice of the Rising Generation, focused on raising children amid wealth or Cycle of the Gift, which is really written for givers to really do that thoughtfully. Any of those books include and others um, you can find on Amazon. If you search my name or barnesandnoble.com or wh- whatever, wherever you buy books, you can also get them in audible versions and, and the like. So they're pretty easy to find. As far as learning more about uh, family qualitative capital management or wise counsel, you can certainly visit wisecounselresearch.com. We have a lot of information there, a few videos and the like. Um, and then I'm always happy to respond to people's uh, requests and inquiries too. I talk to family members all the time who aren't clients who are just looking for you know some guidance and a chance to you know, kind of have a thoughtful conversation about what they're dealing with. So I'm, I'm happy to do that too. Okay. That sounds awesome. And of course, as always, you can, uh, you can email Rod or I or Tim, and we will happily get you connected with Keith. Keith, it's been a really great conversation. We appreciate you coming on and uh, we'll have to catch up again soon. Thank you for listening to the Money Insights Podcast. To learn more about the financial and business strategies discussed in this show, please visit moneyinsights.net. The views and opinions expressed on the Money Insights podcast are not intended to be individual financial, tax, or legal advice. Always consult with the appropriate advisor before making financial decisions. And if you're enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. This will help others find the show and learn wealth-building strategies for themselves. Thanks again for tuning in, and we'll catch you in the next episode.